Hello and welcome to NewsHour from the BBC World Services, coming to you live from our studios in London. I'm Tim Franks. In a moment, what's the plan? The 27 other countries of the European Union meet to discuss what the EU should look like without Britain. Also on the programme, the Olympic torch touring Brazil ahead of the Rio Games. For some, the effect runs deep. It's all very new. It's the first time the Olympics are in Brazil. When the torch arrived here, the first person to carry it was a black woman. This caught my attention because usually it's only white people who get those roles. Black people are discriminated against. It's very important that I'm carrying the torch and I'm black. It's really moving. From the route of the Olympic torch in Brazil, that report in about 15 minutes. Six days ago, Britain voted to leave the European Union. Six days on, are we any closer to knowing what that means? Today, the British Prime Minister, David Cameron, said what would be the central issue for his successor. I personally think that access to the single market and the strength of our economy is the single most important uh, issue that they have to deal with. Access to the single market is the key then, at least for the man currently in charge and shortly due to leave. We'll hear in a moment how far that vision is shared by one of the most ardent leave campaigners from the governing Conservative Party. But what's the view in the rest of Europe? Another novelty today, an EU summit on a huge issue featuring all member states except for Britain. The issue, you've guessed it, of British withdrawal. Speaking after the meeting, the German Chancellor Angela Merkel said that leaders had agreed that should Britain want access to the EU's internal market, then what are known as the four freedoms, freedom of, freedom of movement for people, goods, capital and services, must be part of the deal. We then say that the United Kingdom needs to clearly state its intention as to how it wishes to shape its future relationship with the Union. That it needs to outline this and we point out yet again that access to the single market, the internal market, will only be possible with due respect of the four freedoms and on the basis of that principle. The president of the European Council, the Forum for Member States, is Donald Tusk. He took out his verbal marker pen to make his point. Leaders made it crystal clear today that access, access, that, uh, access to the single market requires acceptance of all four freedoms, including the freedom of movement. There will be no single market a la carte. So how tough is the rest of the European Union hanging with Britain? Our correspondent at EU headquarters in Brussels is Nick Beek. Well, listening to all the, the leaders today, Tim, you, you did see that they were putting on a, a united front here, saying that this is non-negotiable, the option of an a la carte system where Britain could cherry-pick what it wants from a new deal, um, but at the same time having some wriggle room on freedom of movement. That's simply not going to happen. And, it's, I mean, it's interesting. I was in a press conference with the, the, uh, the Hungarian leader today, and he himself is, um, can be described as Eurosceptic, and he doesn't like the way that the EU's imposed quotas on migrants coming from, say, Syria. Uh, he doesn't think that the Brussels formula for, for dealing with that is right. But in terms of fundamentally changing what is a, a key cornerstone of the EU, he says, look, that's a bridge too far and it won't be happening anytime soon. So it does seem for now that there is this united voice on this key issue. 
One of the arguments that's often used by uh, the Brexiteers, the people who, who wanted Britain to leave the European Union, and we'll hear from a Conservative MEP uh, making this point, is that, you know, the rest of the European Union can hang tough, but uh, essentially uh, they need Britain uh, just as much, perhaps more, than Britain needs the EU in terms of trade. It's just too valuable to them to uh, decide that they're going to... Uh, you know, sacrifice that on the altar of their four precious freedoms. How far is that the case? Well, it's interesting. I think, you know, I mentioned it's a a united voice today, but of course, Brussels is the capital of deal making. And at the moment, their position sounds very, very clear. But in the future, will there be any more um, room for manoeuvre? We simply don't know. Added to all the uncertainty here is the fact that official negotiations, of course, can't start until the next British Prime Minister, whoever replaces David Cameron, goes through this process of triggering Article 50 and saying, look, Britain is officially leaving. Until that takes place, those sort of nuts and bolts, those conversations we're told, simply won't be happening. There will be no secret talks before that. The BBC's Europe reporter Nick Beak on the sounds of apparent harmony, perhaps even unison from Brussels, from the 27 remaining members of the European Union. If the UK wants to retain access to the single European market, that message being it'll have to accept the other sides to the deal, free movement of people as well as goods, capital and services. Given what a neuralgic issue immigration proved to be in the referendum, could that be acceptable to the true believers in a British withdrawal from the EU? Daniel Hannan is a Conservative member of the European Parliament who, in his words, has devoted 26 years of his life to getting Britain out of the EU. What does he make of that apparent ultimatum? Well, as a statement of fact, lots of countries have access to the single market without having any special deals on free movement of people. The European Union has recently, to pluck an example moral in the air, signed free trade agreements with Colombia and Peru without any free movement of people. You know, Turkey is in the free market without having free movement of people. You know, so the, as a matter of, of observable fact, of course you can have access to the single market without having free movement of people. But I mean, in terms of what deal Britain should get, we have promised very clearly in the campaign to take back control of immigration policy. And what that, it seems to me, can only mean is that no foreign court gets to determine who can settle in the UK or reside in the UK, that that's a decision for Parliament. How Parliament then chooses to exercise its sovereignty is, of course, a matter for members of Parliament in future. You talk about the example of countries around the world having uh, access to the European single market. Undoubtedly true. What they don't have is unfettered access. And, I mean, to take, for example, the boss of the Society of Motor Manufacturers and Traders in the UK, he says... 80% of what we produce is exported. The only way to succeed is through unrestricted and reciprocal access to the EU. I have no doubt that there will be unrestricted reciprocal access in motor cars. Britain is a huge importer of EU cars. I don't think anyone is seriously proposing that the German car industry will want to restrict cross-channel trade. Yeah, but with the the greatest respect, the German car industry won't have a seat at the negotiating table. If those political leaders are thinking to themselves, and you may think that it's an unfair calculus, 
But nonetheless, they're thinking to themselves, the last thing we want to do is to give the UK some sort of preferential deal where they can get all the access that they want to the single market but have none of the obligations to allow, for example, free movement of people. I mean, that, that's fantasy. Of course. Uh, no one's expecting anyone to behave other than in their own self-interest. I'm amazed at how many people think that countries trade with each other as a favour. The only assumption that I'm making is that people will want to maximise their own prosperity. And in a sense, the United Kingdom and the other European countries do have a joint interest in keeping the cross-channel trade going in a way that benefits all participants. As you say, you've made it your life's work to uh, campaign for Britain to leave the European Union. That wish has now been fulfilled. If it ends up, and it's perfectly feasible that it does, that Scotland holds a second referendum on independence from the United Kingdom and the Scottish nationalists win that, the United Kingdom breaks up, will it have been a price worth paying? I'm always and everywhere in favour of referendums. Uh, I, I think they're a brilliant mechanism to remind us politicians that we are servants and not rulers. So I was strongly in favour of holding the last Scottish referendum. Uh, these things should be tested regularly. And although I supported the union in that referendum, I didn't get a vote. And I'd have, of course, accepted the result willingly either way. I'd like to see many more national and local referendums because by and large, people are wiser than their leaders. So it would have been a pr it will be a price worth paying should Scotland well, It's succeed. not a question of being a price worth paying. It's a, qu a question of doing the right thing democratically and giving people the outcome that they want. Daniel Hannan, a Conservative member of the European Parliament. The UK's vote to leave the EU has led to an increased interest from Britain in obtaining passports to other EU countries. Google Trends has shown a spike in people entering the search term since last week's referendum. Anna Holligan has been to find out why some British families in the Netherlands are pre preparing to apply for Dutch passports, despite the prospect of then having to give up their British nationality. The Watts family are sitting down to chocolate-covered croissants. Five-year-old Erin and three-year-old Brendis are admiring their passport photos. Baby me. Their mum, Anna, is an astrophysicist. British citizen, no more, huh? She's worried about their future. A British passport when you can't travel and work anywhere else in the EU is, is not worth as much. We'd like our children to have those chances too, to move and work, encounter other cultures and have you know, job opportunities they simply wouldn't have in the United Kingdom. And they won't get that with a British passport anymore. Anna and her husband, Jason, are prepared to make the necessary sacrifices. We are planning to apply for Dutch citizenship. That means we have to renounce our British citizenship because the Dutch don't give the opportunity for dual nationality. It, I'm sad. I have to say I'm sad to say that we're letting it go. It's just they will have chances that British kids will have to now jump over a barrier to get through. Yeah. So it doesn't mean it's impossible. It just means it's more difficult. I mean, when it's life more difficult. Yeah. Is really a very stark choice, but it's one. Well, it's one we're prepared to make. So we're leaving the Watts to finish their breakfast, uh, and we're heading north to meet another Brit, Simon Leach. You'll see his wish come through. When we arrive, his daughter Tabitha is practising her English. 
At six and a half years old, she already speaks three languages. But Simon is afraid that when the UK leaves the EU, Tabitha's future may be jeopardised by her British documentation. Especially if you look at higher education. Today, from my, my own experience, I know there are different levels of admittance for EU citizens versus international citizens. And there are lower quotas for those outside of the EU. So by having a Dutch passport, she would be open to the opportunities for the rest of the EU citizens. And it will just make it easier for her to make the decision that she wants to make. So for Simon, going Dutch is purely a way to retain their freedom. To me, the passport is a piece of paper and and the piece of paper that allows you to travel between countries. The challenge I see now is that if uh, the UK is no longer part of the European Union, I start to see restrictions on that travel. In the worst case, the Dutch passport would have the same value as the UK passport. So it's, it's kind of hedging bets. Simon Leash ending that report from the Netherlands by Anna Holligan. And uh, our political correspondent Rob Watson will be with us tomorrow on NewsAd to take your questions on the consequences of the UK's decision to leave the EU. You can post your questions on our World Service Facebook page and we'll put them to Rob here on NewsAd. And coming up on this programme, Escape from Atrocity, the Jewish prisoners who tunnelled to escape from the Nazis. Archaeologists discover the route. The Nazis decided that they needed to basically destroy all the evidence. So they brought in 80 Jews basically to burn all the bodies. And in the midst of this, one of the, one of the 80 Jews was, a, was an engineer, and he said, we can dig a tunnel out of this place. That uh, story in about 30 minutes, and it's a remarkable story indeed. Our headlines this hour, financial markets have recovered further in the wake of the UK's decision to leave the European Union. And uh, as we've been hearing, EU leaders have told Britain it can't expect access to the European single market without accepting the free movement of people. You're listening to the BBC World Service and coming to you live from London, it's News Hour with me, Tim Franks. It's the size of a tennis ball, thought to be two and a half billion years old, and it's just failed to be sold at auction, despite a bid of $61 million. The world's largest uncut diamond, a full 1,109 carats, was unearthed in Botswana back in November. The auctioneers, Sotheby's, called it the find of a lifetime, but uh, not uh, enticing enough to meet the reserve price. Joanna Hardy is an independent jewellery specialist who was at the auction earlier, why didn't it sell? Usually these large rough are put out to private tender to the diamond industry, to the cutters. And, you know, it is a very, very specific area, that, you know, the skills that's needed to cut a diamond. So it, it usually happens behind closed doors with sort of diamond cutters. And so this was the first time it was actually opening it up for a public auction. So, you know, there was an element of speculation and, you know, just wondering to see how the market would take it on a wider scale. Right, but I mean... it didn't. <laughs> no, indeed. Well, it, 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 it was all slightly anticlimactic. But I suppose it's difficult um, to say, but given your level of expertise, what do you think it is worth? Well, no, it's, it's not so much that. You see, what is... 
you know, with a rough diamond, the actual potential of it, I mean, with this particular rough, there is a potential of it being uh, cut into a 400-carat D-flawless diamond. Now, that is a, a potential. That's, that's something that, obviously, you have to actually start cutting it to see if it's going to happen. And, so it's a gamble. Um, because it's... Well, it is a bit. It is a bit because it's only until you put the diamond crystal on the wheel that you know that you're going to start being able to produce that. So, you know, I can see, I mean, part of me actually was thinking that I could imagine someone sort of wanting to put this on a pedestal and sort of have it sort of turning around like a work of art, like a piece of sculpture, um, knowing that there's the potential of this. Uncut, yes, because actually it's a very beautiful crystal um, when you hold it in your hand, something that's formed nearly three billion years ago, Mm. um, the depths of 140 kilometres beneath the earth. It's quite an amazing, especially of that size, is, is really quite extraordinary. If you were and to want to cut it up, though, uh, would it, I mean, are the economics of this that it would be, you, you're likely, if it is as good as it, it, it could be, that you're likely to make more money out of cutting just one enormous uh, diamond rather than lots of smaller ones? Well, that's the speculation. I mean, because it depends on the market. It depends. Do you want to make um, one large stone or do you want to be maybe a little bit more commercial and make two stones? Um, And of course, the, the rough will also dictate that. You know, you can't just decide what you want. While you're working on the stone, it's the rough that actually is going to tell you what what you can do with it. Uh, you know, there's, it's always that dilemma when cutting a rough diamond. Are you going to cut it into smaller items or are you going to have that one big stone? Are you going to have the floor on the side or are you going to cut a smaller stone and have it flawless? And these are all discussions that go along the journey while cutting it. And it can take up to, you know, six months, eight months, 12 months to actually cut it. That was a jewellery specialist, Joanna Hardy, on uh, that unsold diamond unlike any other. It's less than two months to go to the Rio Games and the Olympic torch is winding its way across Brazil. More than 12,000 people will carry the flame in more than 300 cities up to the moment the Games kick off in Rio in August. The route also exposes Brazil's deep contrasts and inequality. Our correspondent Julia Carnero went to meet one young torchbearer in one of Brazil's poorest states. (laughs) (laughs) Hayane da Silva Xavier is having breakfast with her family. She lives with her aunt, who raised her. It's a simple house with bright green walls, and the table is set with traditional regional food like tapioca rolls and corn couscous. It's the morning before the big day. She's going to carry the Olympic torch here in her city, São Luís. It's all very new. It's the first time the Olympics are in Brazil. When the torch arrived here, the first person to carry it was a black woman. This caught my attention because usually it's only white people who get those roles. Black people are discriminated against. It's very important that I'm carrying the torch and I'm black. It's really moving. We're in the northeast state of Maranhão, which has the lowest average income in Brazil. Living on my street, there are police officers, domestic maids, construction workers, very humble people. This is a calm community. 
But sometimes outsiders come and rob houses. That's happened a lot. And here we don't have a square or any playground area. We have to play on the streets. We've come to a muddy outdoor pitch surrounded by small brick houses and groups of kids are playing different games. This is part of the so-called sports and leisure project run by a local NGO and Hayani takes part as one of the teenage mediators that encourages kids to be here. She's now playing football with a group of children roughly half her size. One of them just scored. We go by their houses and say, come on, let's go out and play some sports. It will be fun. Lots of kids here start using drugs really early. Lots of girls get pregnant early too and have to leave school to take care of their child. The project helps keep teenagers occupied and prevent problems. Often there is nothing to do after school and then they go down the wrong path. Kids are now standing in circle practicing capoeira, the traditional Afro-Brazilian fight or dance. And I'm here with Eliana Almeida. She's the regional coordinator for UNICEF that supports this project. And she tells me their goal is to empower kids through sport and to address problems that are very common here. This state has one of the highest infant mortality rates in Brazil and very high levels of illiteracy. We're always among the first when it comes to the country's worst development indexes. In projects like this, we try to reduce the risks faced by children. They are vulnerable to school evasion, to drug gangs, early pregnancy. They are excluded from many policies and basic rights. We're now in the bus where Hayani and seven other torchbearers are being taken to join the torch relay. She has the torch already. She's all dressed up in a white and gold and yellow uniform. And she's taking a selfie of herself with the torch. Hayani, are you excited? She says she's very excited and very anxious. All her friends are coming to watch her and take pictures of her. I'm on the truck that's leading the way for all the torchbearers and it's Hayani's turn now. She, the previous torchbearer just lit her torch and she's running forward with a bright smile on her face, being cheered on by all her friends and she's running quite vigorously like the young, energetic teenager that she is. I'd like to dedicate my moment with the torch to all the children in the world, especially black ones. I hope to inspire other children so they may dream and never give up. That was uh, Ayani de Silva Xavier speaking to the BBC's Julia Carnero in Brazil. If you can, please stay with us here on News Now. We've got plenty more to come in the next 30 minutes, including a remarkable find by archaeologists in Lithuania. Next on NewsAir, the Istanbul airport attack. We'll get the view of a security specialist. First, our daily look at business news and stock markets around the world have seen share prices recover for a second day after the shock of the British vote to leave the EU. 
Longer term, though, as we've been exploring elsewhere in the programme, questions remain about what future trade relations between the UK and the EU will look like and what major multinationals with offices in Britain might decide to do. I've been speaking to our economics correspondent, Andrew Walker, on that issue of what the multinationals might do. We heard all sorts of dire warnings during the campaign uh, ahead of the referendum about what might happen. What is happening? We don't have firm decisions taken by big businesses, but there certainly have been some indications that at the very least they are thinking about moving some operations to other parts of Europe. For example, Visa, the credit card company, is said to be thinking of about moving perhaps a 1,000 jobs to elsewhere in Europe. The concern there is about its data centre operations with requirements that data storage, key customer data storage, should happen within the European Union. Vodafone, the mobile phone company, is looking very seriously at the possibility of moving at least its headquarters elsewhere in Europe. They want to see what comes out of the negotiation in terms of the free movement of goods, people and capital. The Institute of Directors has uh, has surveyed its members. A thousand of them replied and 36% of them said they were thinking about cutting investment. The decision would likely lead to a cut in investment. 9% actually said that they would increase investment as a result of the decision. So that's slightly, slightly surprising. But basically what we've got here, I think, is a pattern of businesses thinking about the possibility that they might want to move. But so far as we can see, very few have taken any hard decisions yet. But then it's only a few days, so perhaps that's not surprising. Well, although you might imagine that they could have planned for the possibility. Yeah, certainly. And they have been thinking about the possibility in advance. But some of these decisions are going to be determined by what the final shape of the agreement between Britain and the European Union is. And clearly, we don't know that. We don't even know exactly what kind of arrangement the new British Prime Minister, whoever he or she is, is going to ask for. But how far could the new British Prime Minister strive to protect the interests of the City of London, Britain's financial centre? Because it's so key to Mm -hmm. the British economy. Well, there are certainly a couple of issues that have got um, a lot of people in the city slightly worried. One is something called clearing services in relation to the euro currency, which basically is ensuring that once you've done a deal, all the, if you like, back office stuff is done so that the deal is actually carried full through in full. There was an attempt by the European Central Bank to get that into the eurozone in the recent past. That didn't work because of the protection of the European Court of Justice. So that could move. There's also the question of passports, as they're called for banks, that once they're established in one EU country, they can operate across the whole area. That might be a difficult one, although campaigners for a leave said that it is addressable. That was the BBC's economics correspondent, Andrew Walker, on uh, the effects of Brexit, at least on the City of London. This is NewsHour, live from the BBC in London. And as we were on air this time yesterday, we started getting reports of gunfire and explosions at Istanbul's main international airport. Today, the extent of the horror became clear. 41 people dead, more than 200 injured, several dozen, very seriously. Three attackers had arrived in a taxi, began firing at the terminal entrance and then blew themselves up. Turkish officials say that the signs point towards the militants being from the self-declared Islamic State group. Frederick Ishebek Baum is an intelligence and security analyst in the War Studies Department of King's College London. Uh, he wrote a piece in uh, a British newspaper 
today suggesting that this was an act of uh, an attack of considerably sophisticated urban warfare. Why Because so? it's something uh, Turkey hasn't seen before on that scale. If you take a look at the footage and listen to the witness reports, um, the attackers diverted their target, that's the, the people, um, the civilians, they diverted them to a certain area in the airport building only to attack them and ambush them uh, there again. What, diverted them how? Through, By launching an initial attack, yes, which through, then funneled through explosions. people. Yeah, so everyone was running away towards one certain area and there a second explosion happened. I mean, in terms of the government saying this points to Islamic State being responsible, is that partly, do you think, because of what you're describing as being the, the relative sophistication of this attack? Yes, yes, absolutely. This is pretty clearly the handwriting of the Islamic State, I would say, yeah. In terms of how one attempts to prevent these sorts of attacks happening, I mean, I guess questions will be asked about perimeter checks, about how far you can stop people from, from getting into places. Is it realistic, though, to keep on pushing perimeters further and further out? Because from what I understand at this airport, I mean, they, they had an X-ray, X-ray machines, for example, quite close to the, to the entrance, but... You know, the attackers didn't obviously wait until they got to that point. Yes, absolutely. Um, I dare say the straightforward answer is that there is no no 100% security, can never be. The security at Ataturk Airport is already pretty tight, yet um, the attackers arrived in a taxi, obviously underestimated by the security guards. One thing I would like to mention is I find it quite remarkable that nowadays the attackers don't have to enter the airport as such. They don't have to pass security with, uh, in disguise with, with explosive devices or, or guns. Uh, it is absolutely um, enough to be uh, in the terminal as such. And uh, so we, we can see a change of pattern, change of behaviour, uh, change of targeting there. What in the sense that you're saying that, you know, we've known for an awful long time that the classic guerrilla warfare is to target, for example, military checkpoints, security spots. But here is an attack that's that's designed to cause civilian casualties. Yes, absolutely. Um, so the classic uh, guerrilla warfare tactic would be to ambush your opponent. You can observe that um, elsewhere in the world um, in uh, insurgent movements. But here... Um, as I've said before, the, the civilians have been deliberately diverted, um, treated as proper opponents, I dare say. In which case, I, I return to the, the question, I mean, I make it broader than the one about sort of where one has a security perimeter. I mean, is it possible to prevent this sort of attack? It is impossible to prevent every attack. It's, we simply have to live with what we describe as intelligence failure, strategic failure, strategic surprise... Uh, that is something we have to live with. You can't avoid it. You can minimise the risk. You can do anything, everything you, you uh, have at hand to try and minimise the risk. But occasional failure is something very natural, actually, unfortunately. Frederick Ischbeck Baum, an intelligence and security analyst in the War Studies Department of King's College London. Let's return to Britain's place in Europe and the world. Much of the talk about the effect of a UK withdrawal from the European Union has been rather abstract. So here's a question on the tangible, indeed edible. What might be the effect on the British diet? Tim Lang is Professor of Food Policy at City University in London. 
I think that severing the links between Britain and the European Union is mainly a problem of uncertainty. But it's pretty likely that some of the really good things for the national diet, fruit and vegetables particularly, that we get disproportionately from the European Union will be harder to get and more expensive to get. Could Britain grow peaches? No. Can it grow bananas? its favourite fruit? No. We get some from Greece, we get mostly bananas from the Caribbean. You could say, therefore, what's the change? Well, what changes is supply chains, the contracts that the supermarkets and the food manufacturers and the traders and the wholesalers all do. Everything that we've assumed comes through a network of tariff-free, no taxes, connection points, all of that changes. The entire supply lines will have to change or else cost more. They'll they- change, but they won't necessarily stop. No, I agree. It's not going to stop food coming into Britain. What it means is that the expectations of the British of access to olive oil, to wine, the plentiful supplies of wine, all of that will alter. You could actually say that Brexit will force the British to start growing more of their own food and to stop... Which is not necessarily a bad thing. No, I think it would be a good thing. But let me just tell you, about a quarter of all the farm workers who pick the the products, who are out there in Lincolnshire picking cabbages, harvesting the fields in bad weather, they're foreign. In the food manufacturing sector, which is the biggest manufacturing sector of Britain, bigger than the aerospace industry, 38% of food manufacturing labour force is foreign. Why? Because the Brits don't want to work in it. So I think Britain is actually going to have to wake up. It wants to leave, or narrowly it's voted to leave, and the food implications of this are going to be immense. But if it really wants to start feeding itself and reducing its reliance upon the European Union, if it really wants independence, wow, we're going to have to live differently. You've painted a very positive picture of what food imports from the rest of the European Union have done for Britain and for the British diet. Some people would say that that has come at the cost of pouring billions of euros into a wasteful, damaging subsidy called the Common Agricultural Policy. What do you say to that? Well, I would say that's absolutely right. I've been a fierce critic of the Common Agricultural Policy. But the old arguments against it have actually mostly been addressed. To its credit, the decision makers in Brussels, including the British government, because we're part Part of it have actually reduced the subsidies going to overproduce supplies that are then dumped onto the developing world. Those days are over. What this CAP, the Common Agricultural Policy, has become really is an environmental and a social and a rural development policy. And that mostly now the critics think is a much better direction. What it now needs to be facing is to become a sustainable food policy. That's what Britain, whether it's in the European Union or out, really needs to do. Why? Because the scientific evidence is overwhelmingly strong. Climate change, water stress biodiversity loss, land use pressures, population pressures. These are actually the things that we should be addressing. So mostly academics are now convinced that the leaving of the European Union is a dangerous deviation from the urgent task of making the food system across Europe and indeed across the world, whether Britain's in and out of the European Union, more sustainable. Professor Tim Lang on the future of the British diet.
How do you get a prosecution these days in a murder trial? Well, there are all sorts of familiar techniques, maybe forensic, maybe surveillance, maybe the testimony of witnesses. But prosecutors in the US state of Michigan are considering whether to use the squawkings of a foul-mouthed parrot called Bud. Glenna Duram has been charged with murdering her husband Martin last year. Relatives of the victim believe that the couple's pet parrot overheard their final argument, culminating in Martin being fatally shot. The bereaved relatives filmed Bud several weeks after the killing, and uh, Bud appeared to be mimicking a male and a female voice. We've spliced together some of that footage. sounds of the parrot bud. So how plausible is it that this could be an accurate record of a crime? Greg Glendale is a parrot behaviourist. This bird has obviously seen some violent, verbally at least violent, things going on and then it's reproducing the sounds that are happening because people are probably gesticulating wildly and shouting and that stimulates the bird to replicate those sounds. They're very good at reading the body language of people. If the birds have been brought up as babies with people they're extremely good at learning what the different body languages and gestures mean in a sort of vague way so they can they can tell by a person's tone of voice and body language whether they're being kind and friendly or obviously you know whether they're being threatening or aggressive and that induces fearful reactions in them. I realise that you're an expert in parrot behaviour as opposed to American prosecutorial (laughs) law. But given that we're told that prosecutors in Michigan are considering whether this is testimony worth admitting in court, what's your gut feeling about that? There's lots of things you need to know before I could answer a question like that. Was the bird saying these words before this incident happened? How did the bird learn these words? So you'd need to corroborate with other people in the family as to whether the bird has suddenly started using these words due to this one incident or whether it was using them before. One of the striking things, listening to that excerpt of what the parrot had to squawk, is how far it, it doesn't just get the words, but it gets the voices and the intonation and, yes. that, and that sense of drama. Are African yes. grey parrots particularly adept at that? They're very good at actually recording very accurately the tone and the accent of the people. You can always tell an American parrot because it sounds like an American, you know, and you could always tell a parrot if it come from England. You would know because they will, they will pick that up. They're, they're very good and very precise at recording what they hear. And the African greys are probably the best birds in the world for, for doing that, as opposed to others like macaws and amazons, which do sound a bit parroty, a bit rough, you know. When we played that clip to you yeah. initially, Greg, it sounded as if you were sort of caught up in the moment. That, And I just wonder how far that was yes. because you, you sort of were empathising with the parrot, empathising with the the events that were... The well, parrot was mimicking? Yeah, you can tell just from that, those, those few seconds that there's a lot of tension there and the bird is reflecting that in its voice. Um, so it's obviously seen those sort of things going on and heard them and, and that's why it's reproducing the sound. But it's quite clear in that short clip that the, there's an awful lot of, of horrible tension going on there and generally the birds do not like this they they find it very upsetting because if they're caught in a very tense environment and they are effectively trapped in a cage they know they can't escape they they have to they're forced to see it 
and it's very distressing for the birds as well if, if people are arguing in front of them. That was Greg Glendell, a parrot behaviourist, talking about uh, what Bud perhaps saw that African grey parrot in Michigan in the United States. This is News Hour from the BBC. You're with News Hour, live from the BBC World Service Studios in London, with me, Tim Franks. Historians of the Holocaust, of the extermination of six million Jews by the Nazis, have uncovered an extraordinary new piece of evidence, a tunnel dug by Jewish prisoners in a forest in Lithuania. They'd been brought from a local concentration camp, these prisoners, to burn the bodies of tens of thousands of people, mainly Jews, who'd been slaughtered by the Nazis and their local collaborators. The archaeologist who led the team that found the tunnel is Dr Richard Freund. He spoke to me from Lithuania. It's about uh, 10 kilometres outside of, of Vilnius, and it was, for all intents and purposes, uh, ground zero for the final solution. When the Nazis took over Lithuania, actually on July 24th, 1941, they started by taking, in early July, the Jews of Vilnius, which was a very famous Jewish community. It was actually designated by the Jews and by worldwide as the Jerusalem of Lithuania because of the great learning and arts and and literature that, that, that had developed in Vilnius over 500 years. And basically, the Nazis decided on a policy. Uh, since there were no extermination camps yet, there were only going to be... The Wannsee Conference was off into 1942. This was an, an attempt to exterminate by bullets in burial pits that had been dug, actually, by the Soviets a year earlier for storage of fuel. So these storage pits were located 10 kilometers outside of Vilnius, and basically they marched the Jews out there, and they started killing them on July 11th. This became a precedent for a Holocaust of a different type, where the victim knew the perpetrator, and they just basically shot every single person on the edge of these burial pits. Uh, in total, we now uh, know that there was somewhere around 100,000 people who were uh, murdered in, in this forest 10 kilometers outside of uh, Vilnius in these burial pits. So the, the story might have been the, the simply that this was an extermination area that was used from 1941 to 1944 except for one extremely different part of the story. And we have 11 testimonies of people that got out and joined up with the, the partisans in 1944 to tell the absolute most horrific and courageous escape that we can think of when you think about the Holocaust. At the end of the 1943 campaign against the Soviets, the Nazis decided that they needed to basically destroy all the evidence. So they brought in 80 Jews basically to burn all the bodies. And this burning brigade was located in one of the pits. They had a bunker. They began the, this horrific task of, of burning all the bodies of their compatriots. And in the midst of this, one of the, one of the 80 Jews was, a, was an engineer, and he said, we can dig a tunnel out of this place. And Yuri Farber, 
conceived of digging underneath the burial pit area where they were located and digging through the sand and creating a burial pit escape tunnel. What did they use to dig that tunnel? They used spoons, implements that they found on the dead bodies that they were burning, and their hands. And the story would be, I think, almost mythic, except for the fact that there were 11 people who actually survived the war and told this story. Unfortunately, it was so difficult to find where they had done this because the tunnel is in the midst of all these burial pits. And for archaeologists to just go in and try to look for it, it would have been extremely uh, extreme desecration. So um, last year we were working on the great synagogue of Vilnius, and the state museum said, maybe you can help us find the tunnel. And I said, well, ground penetrating radar is helpful. It only goes down to about four meters. Uh, This may be deeper, which it turned out it was. And more importantly, we have a new technology that we're using from the gas and oil exploration uh, company, and, and they're willing to fly in their geophysicists to work with us to use electrical resistivity tomography, which is like an MRI for the ground that they use in exploration of gas and oil. And it goes down 20, 30 meters. And it does one very important thing. It can also identify the materials below the subsurface to tell us what's there. And in this case, it was very important because the materials that would have been used to create a tunnel, the implements they used metal implements, they were chained, all the the burning brigade were chained. Uh, They would have to file off their chains. All of these things would have been very clear targets as we were looking through the ground. So on on June 8th, we brought the geophysicists out for the first time. We set up uh, our first test area, 40 meters, across an area where it could be in any one of those locations. And On the first day, we saw it lit up, the tunnel. And if you look at those New York Times images, where you see the blue sand on the side, and you see in the midst of all that blue sand, an orange, a yellow image, that is exactly the area where we have determined was the tunnel. And I guess the significance of this, apart from being a technological feat, is that it's all very well to have testimony and there are a dwindling number of people who can give direct testimony as to what happened during the Holocaust. But here is some physical evidence. Right. And and I think that for the people who come to this site and basically see these burial pits of with stones, memorial stones put up all over them. It is a place of death. And what this story does, I think for the people who have now heard it, is it gives them a sense of hope, of the survival of the human spirit, and the the wherewithal of people like this, chained inside of a pit that are burning their own compatriots, and to have the, the thought of 76 days of digging and then to get out, and then actually to survive the war, and then to tell their story, the idea of having physical evidence is extremely important, I think, for them, their their descendants, and for people who study the Holocaust. An amazing story, as told by the man who uncovered it, Dr Richard Freund, speaking to me from Lithuania. 
That's it from NewsHour. From all of us here uh, on the NewsHour team in London, thank you very much for joining us. Stay with us on the BBC World Service if you can. Otherwise, do return to NewsHour. We'll be on at the same time tomorrow. NewsHour has been a download from the BBC. To discover more and our terms of use, visit bbc.com slash podcasts.